This week's podcast is on urinary tract infections. Today, we're going to go over five learning objectives. One, distinguish between asymptomatic bacteriuria, ASB, cystitis, pyelonephritis, and catheter-associated UTI. Two, we're going to discuss important considerations for optimal timing and interpretation of urine cultures. Three, we're going to rationalize which pathogens are usually implicated in UTIs. Four, we'll discuss usual treatment and treatment duration for UTIs. And five, we're going to apply some of this knowledge to patient cases. So as mentioned in our learning objectives, UTIs encompass infections of the bladder, cystitis, and infections of the kidneys, pyelonephritis. They also encompass urinary tract infections in catheterized patients, which is recognized as its own distinct category. The mechanism of infection for most UTIs is cross-contamination of bacteria from the rectum or perirectal region that then travels up the GU. And UTIs are probably one of the most common infectious diagnoses in hospital. Yes, UTIs are a huge challenge for antimicrobial stewardship and have been a focus of AMS literature. Particularly, misdiagnosed UTIs are a huge cause of excessive antibiotic use both in community and in hospital and have contributed significantly to rising rates of antibiotic resistance. In fact, probably one of the highest impacts any trainee or practitioner can have on antimicrobial preservation is distinguishing asymptomatic bacteriuria from true UTI. ASB is simply the presence of bacteria in the urine of a patient in the absence of any localizing symptoms. This is reflective of a colonizer state. UTI is when those bacteria play an actual pathogenic role and precipitate an inflammatory response, producing symptoms. Being colonized asymptomatically is actually very common. Literature estimates around 20% of seniors are colonized with bacteria in the urinary tract. And patients with long-standing urinary catheters are invariably colonized. After one month with a urinary catheter, 99% of patients will have ASB, but treating these patients with asymptomatic bacteriuria has no benefits for patients and does not change outcomes. But for some patients, it's hard to determine if they're having symptoms. We see more and more elderly patients with cognitive decline or dementia coming in through eMERGE with worsening confusion who can't articulate their symptoms. But the literature provides pretty clear guidance on this. If the patient doesn't have true systemic features of infection, Rather than culturing the urine and reflexively treating what you find, guidelines going back to 2005 and as recent as 2019 suggest providing supportive care and monitoring these patients. Given the broad differential for delirium in adult patients, we should focus on first addressing other possible contributors to their confusion, like dehydration, constipation, pain, medication changes, and that's just to name a few causes of delirium in the elderly. So we should not culture these patients and throw antibiotics at them. We should evaluate their delirium. We should probably mention, though, that while for most patients there is absolutely no benefit to treating ASB, there are actually two scenarios in which we would treat. One is ASB prior to a urologic procedure that will compromise mucosa and risk bacterial invasion, and the second is in pregnant patients. But outside of these two scenarios, treatment of ASB has no benefit for patients. Despite this being well documented, treatment of ASB happens all the time in practice for several reasons. And you can appreciate why this would happen, especially in the current healthcare climate, with the increased demands on the healthcare system and practitioners having more and more on their plate. It's very easy to obtain a urine culture and identify a bacteria, especially with the prevalence of ASB being so high, and then using that to explain nonspecific clinical features. For example, let's say we have an elderly confused patient presenting with failure to thrive, like you mentioned. In fact, many emergency rooms protocolize the routine collection of a urine culture in this setting. We like to have organic explanations for presentations, rather than dealing with uncertainty like the many possible other precipitants of delirium in the elderly. And there can be time-consuming consequences to identifying a worsening cognitive decline in an elderly patient, such as them then having inadequate capacity to return to their current level of care at their residence. 
whereas diagnosing a UTI provides an easy explanation that implies the patient will improve since treatment of infection is perceived as curative and avoids these other uncomfortable situations. And that brings us to the second reason ASB is often diagnosed as a UTI and treated. Infection is always attempting diagnosis to deliver to a family. Unlike so many diagnoses now in medicine, infections have the connotation of being curative. They are perceived as having a simple solution. That makes the family a lot happier than explaining that there may be no obvious reason for an elderly patient's delirium, which can have many possible causes, and therefore no easy solution. And, adding to this, families of elderly patients have often had this diagnosis delivered to them as an explanation for delirium multiple times. So they've come to expect this as the diagnosis, and will even tell you, mom always gets like this when she has a UTI. And it's difficult to take the time to dispel that impression. And without an alternate satisfying explanation, it can feel like a futile discussion that the patient's family won't accept. And finally, considering that antibiotics take time to work, delivering a diagnosis of infection also buys a practitioner time, allowing them to evaluate other causes or pass the patient on to a colleague. So for all of these reasons, we can appreciate why it would be so easy to fall into the trap of admitting a patient with nonspecific clinical features, culturing the urine, and attributing their picture to the bacteria you happen to find. So for all of these reasons, we can appreciate why it can be so easy to fall into the trap of admitting a patient with nonspecific clinical features, culturing the urine, and attributing their picture to the bacteria you happen to find. But not falling into this cycle that has become normalized in clinical practice is hugely important for preserving our antibiotic supply, which is why distinguishing ASB from UTI is one of the single most important things a practitioner can do to help save our increasingly threatened antibiotic arsenal. So distinguishing between these two states both of which have positive cultures, is all about localizing symptoms. In the absence of symptoms, we are dealing with ASB, not a UTI. For patients in whom we are suspecting true UTI, which symptoms we expect to see depends on whether we are concerned for a cystitis or a pyelonephritis. Cystitis is an infection of the bladder that produces localized symptoms like dysuria, increased frequency, increased urgency, and may produce hematuria secondary to disruption of the friable and inflamed bladder lining. On physical exam, this may manifest as suprapubic tenderness. But in cystitis, there is generally an absence of systemic markers of infection. There should be localizing symptoms, but there should be no fever or peripheral leukocytosis. Pyelonephritis, on the other hand, does usually have systemic features of infection, like fever, elevated inflammatory markers, and peripheral leukocytosis. Pyelonephritis is an infection of the parenchyma of the kidney. Because the kidneys are so well vascularized, infection of the renal parenchyma often does produce a systemic inflammatory response. These patients may actually not even have lower GU symptoms, though many will, but they generally have systemic features of infection like fever, chills, rigors, malaise, and weakness. On physical exam for these patients, they classically have CVA tenderness and may have abdominal tenderness with nausea or vomiting. Finally, like pyelonephritis, patients with catheter-associated UTIs also usually have systemic features of infection such as fever and or leukocytosis. Catheterized patients in whom we are querying infection should not simply have retention or fail a trial of void. These are not features that suggest an infection. To point us to a UTI, we need those concordant systemic findings. As a side note when we talk about catheter-associated UTIs, a really important way we can help prevent UTI development in our inpatients is removal of unnecessary urinary catheters. Urinary catheters are commonly placed on arrival and eMERGE and in OR, but they do disrupt the normal host defenses that protect us from a UTI. When our patient has an indwelling urinary catheter, especially if it wasn't present prior to admission, we should question whether they still need that catheter. In fact, Removal of unnecessary urinary catheters has been an institutional quality improvement focus at many centres in Canada to reduce nosocomial UTIs. Okay, so now let's move on to discussing urine cultures, which are easy to contaminate, so have some specific considerations that merit discussion, especially in catheterized patients. 
Obtaining reasonable quality urine cultures is relatively easy in non-catheterized patients. It just means obtaining a clean midstream catch after appropriate cleansing of the genital region. But in catheterized patients, it's more onerous because to get a good sample, we have to actually change the catheter. We want to know what bacteria might actually be in the urinary tract causing an infection, not just what bacteria is biofilming on the catheter. And unfortunately, if it is not specifically stated in the order to change the catheter, often what happens in practice is staff just clamp the catheter and collect urine without changing it. But a culture drawn from an old catheter is pretty non-interpretable. So we need to make sure when we write the order to obtain cultures, we explicitly say that we need to change the catheter first. Okay, so if we're suspecting a UTI on the basis of localizing symptoms or systemic symptoms of infection, we obtain our urine cultures using appropriate technique. But these take time to come back, so now this brings us to empiric treatment. This depends a bit on the host we are treating and in what setting, as well as whether we are dealing with cystitis, pyelonephritis, or a catheter-associated UTI. In healthy outpatients who develop cystitis or pyelonephritis, remember that most UTIs start with contamination from the nearby rectal region into the GU, with subsequent evasion of host defenses and vertical ascension. We know that gram-negatives predominate in the GI, and so gram-negatives are the most commonly implicated pathogens in UTIs. And from our Bugs and Drugs podcast, we know our community gram-negatives include the PEC organisms, Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella. In fact, for community-onset cystitis in healthy patients, E. coli causes around 85% of infections. So we can actually cover outpatient cystitis with a fairly narrow agent. Young, sexually active female patients may not even need urine cultures because we know it's probably just E. coli. And since cystitis does not generally produce a systemic infectious response, oral therapy is recommended. Our goal is mostly symptom control. Antibiotics minimally prevent progression of cystitis to pyelonephritis, so you're not treating to prevent complications. There are a few scenarios in which we would need to give IV therapy for cystitis. In fact, most of these patients should be preferably treated with a urinary agent like nitrofurantoin that would cover gram-negatives like E. coli and Kleb and minimize collateral damage. This is in total contrast to something like ciprofloxacin, which was historically given for cystitis, but it is very broad and is associated with a lot of collateral damage, and not to mention several black box warnings. So our preferred agents for cystitis will usually be oral agents with a comparatively narrow spectrum, like nitrofurantoin or cephalexin, or if necessary, cotrimoxazole or cefexime. To select among them, we should review any previous cultures to ensure the patient is not colonized with a more resistant microbe or hasn't been infected with one previously, and we should look at whether or not they've recently been on antibiotics. But in general, all of these agents are reasonable empiric choices. Okay, so that covers outpatients with cystitis. What about patients presenting to hospital or urgent care with suspected community-onset pyelonephritis? For pyelonephritis, it is important to obtain a culture prior to antibiotics to direct therapy, because we do want to be able to target our antibiotics to the causative pathogen if our patient doesn't respond to empiric treatment as expected. We are still worrying about the same organisms in our community patients, E. coli and Klebsiella, but with pyelonephritis, we may choose to start with IV antibiotics depending on the patient's status. So it would be reasonable to start empirically with ceftriaxone unless the patient had repeated courses of systemic antibiotics or is known colonized with multidrug-resistant organisms. And then, after we observe a clinical response, we can step down to oral therapy directed by our culture results. Interestingly, there's now data suggesting that IV antibiotics may not even be necessary for empiric treatment of pyelonephritis if the patient can tolerate oral therapy and is sufficiently stable that they aren't being admitted. This goes back to our first podcast, we're expanding our understanding of when oral antibiotics can be used. So even for patients with pyelonephritis, after obtaining the urine culture, oral antibiotics may be appropriate empirically. Alternatively, the patient can be given a single dose of ceftriaxone and then given an appropriate oral agent, like amoxclav or cefexime. An important side note here about pyelonephritis. 
Please remember that urinary agents like nitrofurantoin or oral phosphomycin are not appropriate for pyelonephritis. Nitrofurantoin and phosphomycin do not concentrate outside of the lower GU tract and therefore should not be used for pyelonephritis, which is an upper GU infection that involves the renal parenchyma. Let's also quickly touch on fluoroquinolones, which were a historic favorite oral antibiotic for UTIs. Fluoroquinolones have a host of supportive data, but it should be noted that there is rising resistance to fluoroquinolones among gram-negatives, especially E. coli, because of their excessive use in the community. These agents also have more collateral damage in black box warnings than other agents. They've historically been perceived as benign because they're available orally, but they're actually very broad-spectrum agents and should only be used if culture confirms we don't have the choice of a narrower-spectrum agent with lesser collateral damage. Yes, fluoroquinolones were once regarded as a kind of band-aid solution for a variety of infections, but now it is well recognized that they are associated with a host of collateral damages and should only be used if the situation necessitates it. Some situations will, but in general, we try to avoid them unless we don't have other options. Okay, so now we've covered healthy outpatients. What about inpatients who are hospitalized at the time of UTI onset? For patients who develop UTI while hospitalized, gram-negatives like E. coli and CLEB are still the most common, but more resistant gram-negatives may also cause infection, in particular if the patient has recently received antibiotics. If we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast, this is in keeping with what we would expect when we switch from a community to a nosocomial setting. For inpatients who develop cystitis while in hospital, we can still use our outpatient oral cystitis agents like nitrofurantoin, as, again, cystitis is not a systemic infection and we are really just targeting symptom control. Nitrofurantoin doesn't cover the whole host of nosocomial gram-negatives. For example, it doesn't cover space organisms, but it can cover ESBL E. coli and ESBL Klebsiella and is still a reasonable option. Since it's easy to obtain urine cultures in inpatients, if suspecting cystitis, we should obtain urine culture for these patients. And then, if our patient doesn't respond to empiric therapy, we can alter our treatment as per our culture results. It is also important for these patients, who are usually more compromised hosts, to look through old culture results to help us discern if the patient has previously been infected with resistant organisms, which could obviously affect our empiric antibiotic choice. If they do have a history of resistant bacteria, we can choose empiric therapy to cover what they've been infected with recently. Now, for hospitalized patients who develop suspected pyelonephritis. Like we've already mentioned, patients with suspected pyelonephritis should be cultured prior to starting antibiotics, regardless of the setting. Ceftriaxone may still be appropriate for hospitalized patients, but we have a lower threshold for starting broader empiric therapy. If the patient is septic or has risk factors for more resistant gram-negatives, like recent systemic antibiotic exposure, we may use peptazo to cover our nosocomial gram-negatives. Aminoglycosides, which concentrate extremely well in the urine and offer broad gram-negative coverage, may also have a role here. As a class, aminoglycosides are low risk for clostridioids difficile infection and are associated with lesser collateral damage than some of our other agents. Regardless of what we choose for empiric treatment, like always, therapy can then be directed by culture results. Oral step-down can be done as per our usual criteria, clinical improvement and ability to tolerate and absorb oral medications. Okay, so what about catheter-associated UTIs? When a patient with a catheter develops a UTI, regardless of whether they are a patient from the community or hospital, the possible pathogens tend to be more diverse than uncatheterized patients. Gram-negatives still predominate, but there are more diverse gram-negatives. Gram-positive pathogens can cause infections in these patients too, because the hardware provides a surface for them to adhere to and allows them to thrive in an area in which they would otherwise ordinarily not. So treating catheter-associated UTIs has some very specific considerations. Our first step for these patients with suspected infection is to change the catheter. This facilitates obtaining a good culture like we've already mentioned, but it also removes a large possible inoculum of bacteria with biofilm from the patient. 
Our second step is to start treatment aimed at more diverse gram-negatives. If the patient stable, was catheterized relatively recently, and doesn't have repeated antibiotic exposure, we may be able to treat entirely with oral antibiotics like amoxiclav or septra, which provide fairly broad gram-negative coverage. If the patient is less well clinically and we're worried about deterioration, we can start with ceftriaxone, or if they've had significant antibiotic exposure or previous culture suggests pseudomonas or ESBL infection, piptazo. This is again a setting where aminoglycosides may have a role because they concentrate so well in the urine, are broad gram-negative agents, and again, are associated with lesser collateral damage than some of our other systemic agents. We would then narrow and step down as per culture results and clinical improvement, like always. Okay, so to summarize, since the treatment of cystitis is mostly about symptom control, whether it is community or hospital onset, we can generally treat cystitis with oral agents. Preferred agents would be those that are narrower spectrum that concentrate in the lower GU and minimize systemic exposure, like nitrofurantoin. For community onset pyelonephritis, we need to obtain cultures, and then we can give either IV ceftriaxone or, if the patient is suitable for oral, amoxiclav or cefixime. Pyelonephritis that onsets in hospital, we will, again, obtain cultures, but may need to cover more broadly than community onset infection because of the risk of nosocomial pathogens. For catheter-associated UTIs, we change the catheter, obtain cultures, and then cover with amoxiclav or septra, if okay for oral, or with ceftriaxone or piptazo pursuant to individual patient risk factors. And while aminoglycosides have traditionally been avoided because of the risk of nephrotoxicity, they concentrate extremely well in the urine and have lesser collateral damage than many of our other systemic agents. So we should remember that gentamicin or tobramycin may also be a reasonable choice. And finally, we always look through old culture results as this can help us with decision-making around antibiotic selection. So that's a quick summary of our empiric management. Now let's move on to discussing duration of treatment. There's been increasing literature on shortening duration of treatment for UTIs, recognizing that they're such a huge utilizer of antibiotics and contributor to antibiotic resistance. The available evidence suggests the following durations of therapy, but literature over the coming years may go on to shorten these durations even more. So duration depends on whether we are treating cystitis or pyelonephritis. Cystitis can be treated for 3 to 5 days depending on the antibiotic. Pyelonephritis can be treated for 7 to 10 days, assuming no abscess or complicating features and good response to antibiotics. The presence of a gram-negative bacteremia secondary to the pyelonephritis does not necessitate longer treatment courses. Finally, catheter-associated UTIs can be treated for 7 days. So basically, we're treating for anywhere from 3 to 10 days, depending on whether we're treating a cystitis, catheter-associated UTI, or a pyelonephritis. Of course, this assumes no source control issue like an abscess. And just a comment on UTIs in males. In males, it's important to rule out prostatic involvement as infection in the prostate can be more difficult to eradicate, and antibiotic penetration into the prostate has some special considerations. If a male is presenting with recurrent UTIs with the same pathogen, or if a male patient is presenting with UTI post-urologic procedure, for example, TERP, infectious diseases consultation can be helpful to discern the duration of therapy. As a final note, there are a few organisms that we should make mention of that are sometimes found in the urine but have specific considerations. Enterococcus faecium, Candida, and Staph aureus. Right, we see these come up in practice, and they cause confusion pretty commonly. Ephesium is almost always a non-pathogenic colonizer in the urine, and shows up as a bystander in patients exposed to several courses of antibiotics. In the absence of indwelling hardware, with accompanying true systemic features of infection, when found in the urine, Ephesium almost never necessitates treatment. Similarly, Candida is almost always either contamination or a colonizer in the urine. Sometimes you'll find Candida in the urine and the blood, When this is the case, it's generally seeded from the blood to the urine, from an original GI source or from a central line, not from the urine to the blood. And Staph aureus is another one where if we find it in the urine, it has almost always seeded from the blood to the urine. 
Right, and this is a common point of confusion in practice especially, where practitioners will find Staph aureus in the blood and urine and label that person as a UTI. When you've got Staph aureus in the blood and urine, hunt for the real source. It's almost never a UTI. And finding the real source is key to management, as mentioned in our Bactremia podcasts, which are coming up. Because this is a longer podcast than our usual 20-minute podcasts, before diving into our cases, we're going to go through the UTI take-homes. So one, there's no benefit to treating asymptomatic bacteriuria in non-pregnant patients unless they're undergoing a urologic procedure in the next 48 hours. Two, do not order a urine culture unless the patient is localizing real symptoms. While it's easy to obtain urine cultures, a significant portion of patients are colonized with bacteria not playing a pathogenic role. Infection is always attempting diagnosis to deliver to a patient's family, but it does a disservice to the patient as well as to future generations when we improperly ascribe nonspecific clinical features to a UTI on the basis of a positive urine culture. Three, when obtaining urine culture, ensure the culture is obtained either midstream clean catch or by in or out catheter if we can't obtain a clean midstream, or from a freshly placed urinary catheter if the patient is chronically catheterized. Four, cystitis is an infection of the bladder, is not usually accompanied by systemic infectious features, and can be treated with oral antibiotics. Pyelonephritis is an infection of the renal parenchyma, is generally accompanied by systemic infectious features, and can be treated with either IV or appropriate oral agents, the latter if the patient is stable. Catheter-associated UTIs should be accompanied by systemic features of infection for diagnosis, Recall patients with catheters are almost invariably colonized with bacteria. So that concludes our take-homes and our podcast, but now we're going to move into two cases to apply some of what we've gone through. So for the first case, Miss C is a 77-year-old female who was brought to hospital by her daughter with worsening confusion over the past 48 hours after suffering a witnessed mechanical fall at home. She did not hit her head. This morning, her daughter noticed her mother seemed not to know the time or the year, thinking her husband was still alive despite him having passed away four years ago. Her mom was overall communicating reasonably well, but she has never seen her mother like this, and the daughter is concerned. The daughter does say that upon helping her mother to the washroom two days ago, she had noticed her mom's urine was cloudy. You go speak to the patient. Miss C is conversant and pleasant, oriented to self and place but not time. She is confused as to why her daughter has brought her to the hospital. On exam, she is not warm to touch. She denies dysuria, frequency, or urgency. She does not appear to have abdominal pain, and she does not have any CVA tenderness. Emerge has already ordered a urinalysis, which shows two plus white blood cells, trace RBCs, zero protein, and trace ketones. They ordered a urine culture, and the nurse noticed that the urine was cloudy and malodorous when she obtained it. The Emerge R1 is wondering about starting ceftriaxone. Patient vitals are overall unremarkable. Temp is 37.2, SATs are 99% on room air, respirate is 17, Blood pressure is 128 over 81, and heart rate is 76. For the labs, they are also relatively unremarkable, but serum creatinine is 99 from a baseline of 63, CRP is 11, white blood cells are 7.8. Past medical history is significant for hypertension, overactive bladder, arthritis, and depression. So, first question, does the white blood cells in the urine point to a possible or even probable UTI? Despite the historic jump to diagnose a UTI in the setting of pyuria, This is not an uncommon finding in patients and can be entirely benign or maybe of an entirely alternate cause. Longitudinal studies have shown that pyuria is found transiently in a significant portion of patients, even young outpatients. Studies of inpatients have shown pyuria to be present in up to 22% of patients without any suspected UTI as a cause. And studies have additionally demonstrated pyuria to be present in patients with other unrelated systemic infections, like pneumonia. There's also a broad differential diagnosis for pyuria based on whether it's transient or persistent, including recent catheter use, recent urologic procedure, presence of other foreign bodies like surgical mesh, 
kidney stones, neoplasm, hydronephrosis, just to name a few. The broad differential diagnosis should not be ignored for the tempting diagnosis of cystitis, which is an easy and quicker diagnosis and simpler to treat. So another question. Does the patient's daughter's observation of cloudy urine, corroborated by nursing, point to infection? Cloudy urine does not correlate to the presence of a urinary tract infection, neither does urine smell or color, and the literature is clear on this. Cloudy urine has a broad differential diagnosis, much like pyuria, but contains a host of even more benign explanations like dehydration or dietary causes. Cloudy urine is never an indication for urine culture on its own. So does the patient's elevated serum creatinine point to a UTI? While pyelonephritis in rare instances can cause an intrarenal cause of AKI due to parenchymal destruction, this is quite uncommon, and alternate causes should always be considered first. In this case, we would have a broad differential diagnosis for the elevated serum creatinine, which is 30% above the patient's baseline, despite being in the normal range. Possible causes include prerenal causes like dehydration, intrarenal causes including acute interstitial nephritis, among others, or postrenal causes like obstruction from a kidney stone. There is a very broad differential, and pyelonephritis would be low down on the list. So what are our top three differential diagnoses for confusion in an elderly patient? In elderly patients, small changes can produce delirium. Dehydration in general can produce delirium and AKI, something patients are at higher risk of during the summer months. Something as simple as constipation can result in abdominal discomfort and nausea, rendering the patient less likely to eat or drink, which can produce a delirium and mild AKI. Further, the discomfort from constipation can itself cause a delirium. New medications can produce changes in mental status, and it's important to remember to inquire about OTC use because there are a lot of anticholinergic medications that are available over the counter. So when we're looking at diagnosing confusion in an elderly patient, we need to obtain the best history possible, and UTI should not be up there as one of our first diagnoses. There are a host of other possibilities. Okay, final question. How would we treat this patient? The patient is hemodynamically stable with new-onset delirium of unclear cause, She's able to converse, and she doesn't endorse any symptoms consistent with cystitis. We should hydrate this patient given her AKI and no contraindications to fluids like heart failure, and we should limit her exposure to anticholinergic medications. We should also ascertain the date of her last bowel movement and ensure stool charting is ordered so that we are confident that her bowel movements are being accurately documented. We can then monitor her with supportive care over the next few days. Even if the urine culture ordered by the eMERGE team comes back positive, this should still be our plan. We shouldn't reflexively jump on that urine culture. So now for case two. Mr. C is an 81-year-old male admitted post-fall with a hip fracture, requiring total hip replacement. Post-op day six. He has a known history of benign prostatic hyperplasia and is awaiting outpatient urology assessment for this. He was previously admitted a month ago with AKI and hydronephrosis secondary to obstruction. His AKI was improving at the time of discharge, but he failed trilavoid twice and he has an indwelling urinary catheter since. This morning, he spiked a fever of 38.2 and has suprapubic fullness and tenderness. White blood cells are elevated at 13.2, neutrophil predominant. Electrolytes are normal, but serum creatinine is up to 211, having been 154 yesterday and 88 the day prior. On exam, he's alert and oriented times 4 and endorses only mild abdominal pain. He's not working to breathe and doesn't require supplemental oxygen. Other than his suprapubic tenderness, his physical exam is relatively unremarkable. His fully catheter drained 100 mils of urine over the last 4 hours. So question, given he's localizing symptoms of suprapubic fullness and tenderness, and his individual risk factors for UTI like benign prostatic hyperplasia and the indwelling catheter, you're suspecting a catheter-associated UTI. What instructions would you provide to nursing with respect to obtaining a urine culture? In a catheterized patient, it would be important to exchange the urinary catheter for a new one and obtain a culture from a clean catheter. 
As a former ER nurse, I can tell you that this doesn't always happen in practice unless it is explicitly stated in the order. This is particularly important for this patient in case his AKI is caused from obstruction or dysfunction of the pre-existing catheter. Okay, so next question. What would your empiric therapy be for this patient? This patient has some risk factors for nosocomial gram negatives. He's been hospitalized, and he has an indwelling catheter. From an overall clinical status standpoint, he also has an AKI. That said, he has no history of antibiotic exposure and no cultures demonstrating colonization with ESBL. He is hemodynamically stable and not septic. Accordingly, it would be reasonable to start with ceftriaxone in this patient while awaiting culture results. If the patient were unstable or had multiple previous antibiotic courses or was known to be colonized with ESBL, we would treat with piptazo empirically instead, which in the urine when not accompanied by a bacteremia can cover ESBL and covers other nosocomial gram negatives as well. So final question, what if this patient's inflammatory markers and symptoms are slow to resolve and kind of stagnate, despite culture demonstrating a susceptible organism and an initial improvement after we start therapy? Well, if we think back to our AMS General Principles podcast, an initial improvement followed by a plateau is suggestive of a possible source control issue such as an abscess or deep-seated infection. At that point, consultation to ID and possibly urology may be indicated. The patient has a history of hydronephrosis, and if the patient has a pyelonephritis, hydronephrosis can render it very difficult to eradicate the infection, necessitating sometimes longer courses of therapy than would ordinarily be necessary. Further, given his history of BPH, it is possible that recent catheter changes have caused trauma to the prostate, which could result in prostatic involvement in the infection, which would alter duration of therapy. This improvement then stagnation could even point to a renal abscess. Given the patient has a multitude of possible complicating features and an AKI accompanying his suspected UTI and febrile symptoms, a low threshold to consult additional services would be important for this patient. So this concludes our urinary tract infection podcast, and our next podcast will be on intra-abdominal infections. <laughs>